This is Annie Grace, and you're listening to this Naked Mind podcast, where without judgment, pain, or rules, we explore the role of alcohol in our lives and culture. Hi, this is Annie Grace, and welcome to this Naked Mind podcast. I'm so happy to have you here. And today's guest, I'm really excited to have. Um, this is Andrew Shanahan. He's the founder of Man Be Fat. And Andrew just reached out to me a few months ago um, with his own journey, which he's going to share today. So I'm so excited. Thanks, Andrew, for joining. You're more than welcome. Thank you very much. And thank you for this Naked Mind. This is going to sound like a blatant commercial. You're going to have people saying that you just paid me to appear. Um, but yeah, <laughs> uh, this Naked Mind has been a massive part of me uh, stopping drinking. So thank you. Oh, that's, that's brilliant. So why don't we start with that? Why don't you back up and, and kind of go back to the first drink, the early days, and, and just sort of tell us your story. Um, my story is relatively normal, I would say, for a, a British UK background, in that um, we all start, or certainly in the area that I'm from, we, we start drinking relatively early. So I was probably um, about 13 when I first started drinking, and um, it was really just a case of our school was you know it had a culture of drinking at weekends and you know the the era that I grew up in um was not a particularly enlightened era I don't think in the kind of the um, late 80s early 90s when I became a teenager where there were a lot of publications at the time that were very very pro heavy drinking and pro binge drinking and you look back at them now and even you know a couple of decades on they just seem absurdly um promotional for for that way of life and I think that but I just grew up you know with that as the norm around me and so I didn't think it was really anything to be concerned about I didn't think it was anything unusual and so for me weekends would be drinking heavily and then during the week I didn't really particularly drink a huge amount but it was it was definitely that that sense of when you went out to drink you drank heavily to the point that you were you know uh, sick or just you know drunk and out of control and it was you and all your friends and just seemed the thing to yeah, do totally. I, I mean, that, that's why it feels, it, you know, when, when everyone is doing something that there are very few detractors and, and you don't really see a different way to things because everyone had that sort of experience. So when you turned 18, you were bought a pint glass and half of it was filled up with spirits from the, the top shelves and half of it and then it was filled up with lager and you downed that and that was sort of you know it, you can see it as a, a right of initiation now but it's that was very much everyone had that that was just the thing that was what you did it was um and it, it seems absurd as i say to to look back and, and think that that was the way that we, we we approached drinking but i think for me the important thing about that uh, those early years was that it set in my mind the pattern that there was no moderation so people often talk about drinking and say you know can't you just enjoy a, a nice glass of red wine or something and but that was never really something that I learned how to do or something that I, I was really uh, I was introduced to um, it was always the drinking that I was introduced to was getting smashed wow that's crazy and I there was a guy recently um, it was probably a year ago, and he had written me a story about how he had stopped drinking, and his uncle actually called him up very upset and said, son, you have a body, punish it. And it was, <laughs> he was just like, wow, this is, 
tip like that a typical thing to say yeah yeah and and, and that's those sorts of you know those indicators and those pushes towards heavy consumption were, were everywhere and so that there was some um famous magazines in the uk called fhm and loaded they were you know they were basically pamphlets glorifying binge drinking and that that was sort of what i grew up with and so as i say it just wasn't um in any way that sense of, i think that the the regret that i have around drinking is that i never did experience that that sort of um that nice glass of wine with dinner experience it was always if you had a nice glass of wine you'd finish the bottle and then if you finished the bottle you'd start thinking and, and it wasn't you know it was just a, a consequence of that that social uh, the mores of the time really yeah i do remember like finishing a bottle and then being like okay well if i switch to beer i can keep going so i can have a few beers after a bottle of wine but if i keep yeah. going with this and definitely it was almost strategic like how to drink as much as possible and minimize how bad you were going to feel or make your best effort not to get sick later, which I got really good at. I only got sick like a handful of times, but it was, it's just so crazy in hindsight. So what about your parents? Like what, what what were, where were they doing? Like, what was their point of view? Um, So I'm strange from my father, so I don't really know what what his approach was, but my mum and my grandma, he brought me up. They, they, um, they probably had a much better relationship with alcohol in many ways. I think they they did come from a time when moderation and, and alcohol, you know, they, they came from a, an era of privation in, in some ways where, um, you know, my grandma lived through rationing and so, and and they both grew up in, well, my mum grew up in an era when, you know, alcohol was sparse, really. Um, and I think that that is, so that I think contributed to them being much more, adults and mature and and being able to enjoy alcohol in that way whereas for me um but then there was definitely still that sense of the weekend was when you got drunk a little bit um, or you sort of you cared less about the um the units that you should be drinking a weekend um, and so were you drinking with with your family then no not really i don't think um not no but they were, so they were kind of doing it, you're kind of doing it, but it's just the thing everybody's doing. Yeah, I mean, we, I would be out with friends and my mom would be out with her friends and it was just, you know, that was the way that we approached it really. That's interesting. So you turn 18, that, that drink, I've not heard of that before. I'm sure it's like just common practice, but that sounds like it tasted awful. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, fortunately and probably life-savingly for a, a huge number of the people who did it, they were just instantly sick. Because you can only imagine just how appalling it must be to metabolize that and have the body process so much alcohol in such a concentrated form. But yeah, it's truly gross. <laughs> and so then, so then after that, um, you went to, did you go to university or where did your path take you? Yeah, I did. And I mean, this is where sort of at university, my, my kind of naivety around food and drink and things was um, really came into play because I just, you know, drank as much as I'd have drunk on the weekend, but probably three or four times a week. And so, you know, my weight ballooned massively. Um, I didn't know how to cook. I'm embarrassed to say, you know, literally nothing. Um, I could probably make 
pasta in a pan and then empty a tin of tuna on the top of it and that that's what i would have considered cooking but most of the time it was just take out food it was and then uh, lots and lots of, of lager on top of that and it was really you know <laughs> i look back on on that period of my life and i'm ashamed about how i wasted that opportunity to to learn at, at university really i mean i did well um but then i absolutely did not suck the marrow from that experience <laughs> it was it was really just i phoned it in massively um and and that's a shame i, I look back on that and think there was three years there where i really had an opportunity to to go and learn from some, from some really fascinating people um and I, I just slept through most of it yeah and it's amazing how you can do well and not learn anything i felt exactly the same about my college experience like it's a those those two things are not mutually uh you know they are mutually exclusive mm, yeah definitely and i think it was because i always read a, an awful lot outside of the course material that i was able to still get by in essays even if i hadn't necessarily read the the source text because i could bring in lots of other things that i was sort of just reading through interest of my own um and and that's that's how i survived that but i mean you know what an idiot I was, probably still am, but you know. <laughs> so then where did that take you after uni? Um, so I did a drama degree um, and I went to university. <laughs> As I said, I was relatively lazy and I went to a university where I thought I was going to, to learn to be an actor. And um, I didn't realize that it was more of an academic course, studying uh, plays, studying drama. And so I was sort of a little bit wrong-footed by that, I think. Um, but the way I got around it was the fact that there, there were also a lot of courses on writing. So I, I really sort of discovered and saw that I was, um, I, I enjoyed writing an awful lot more. Um, and, and so I, I went from there and uh, graduated and went to, I studied journalism and went and worked for a magazine publisher and, um, wrote and after working there for a bit I'd sort of qualified as a journalist and I'd worked as a journalist for them and, and learned a lot about writing and the art of writing and um, started getting pulled more into management roles and just realized that actually what I was far more interested in was the writing itself so I, I went freelance and went and wrote for um, a lot of the UK national newspapers so like the Guardian and the Times um, and wrote for a lot of the magazines, um, including some of the ones that championed all the heavy drinking as well. So things came full circle there. Yeah, it's interesting. So Catherine Gray, she wrote um, The Unexpected Joy of Being Sober, and she and I have become friends. And she came from that industry as well, writing and freelance and writing for... And she said it was just such a boozy culture, which I don't know what culture isn't these days, but she said specifically that culture was... Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think short of probably, you know, working as a stockbroker in the city, I think journalists is, is the one where no one really looks at you askance if you're coming back from lunch having had three or four pints. Um, because, you know, sometimes you need to do that in the course of, of writing. And there's that still that sort of that weird myth that persists about the fact that somehow writing can access your creative powers. Um, whereas I don't know about you, but do you, did you were you worried about that at all when you stopped drinking or, or were you not writing particularly before you start 
stop drinking. So I always, it was, it was funny because being a writer was one of those things that I put on the shelf and I always thought like, okay, I want to be a novelist. Like I want to write stories about, you know, or, or, you know, memoir or something along those lines, certainly not um, a book about overcoming drinking. And so somebody had told me early on in order to uh, be a writer, you just have to write every day. So I was always kind of a big journal. Like I kept a lot of journals until I started drinking heavily all the time. And then those just fell off. Like I have, I have stacks and stacks of journals. And then I have the years from like that, probably it was about 13, 14 years of, of really heavy drinking that like, I maybe have one or two, like if something really good or bad, I would write a half a page or something like that. And then as soon as I was starting to look at my drinking, that started back up. And now I have like stacks and stacks just in the last four or five years again. And so it's really interesting. I found that, um, but I did have that, although that evidence was there, I had that very clear misconception that I would be a writer on my laptop with a glass of wine someday somewhere. Like that was my thought. Like I, that's what I was going to do. Well, I was even ironically because I, I used to think that, that, you know, if I stopped drinking that, that would sort of somehow rob me like reverse kryptonite you know that I, I wouldn't be able to write if i didn't drink and it wasn't that i was you know drinking every day to to sort of be able to write it's just that i think it's one of the things that allowed me to see alcohol as an addictive substance the same way that tobacco is and nicotine is that um you know i i think from um the voice of addiction or the the addiction itself had given me these kind of these pathways and these these ideas that somehow I wouldn't be able to function without these these points where I was drinking or you know when I was a smoker that exactly the same thing that somehow I wouldn't be able to you know well how do you go out if you're not going to have a cigarette how do you you know how do you speak to people if you're not having a cigarette you know and and obviously it's absurd it's patently absurd and but then I think that it's only until you've lived through that period after that, that that voice of addiction quietens down and you start to think, yeah, of course you can do things. But I think in a funny way, I think that that's where, you know, people have spoken quite a lot about the, this hundred day point around not drinking. And the first bit being this sort of this real uh, enthusiasm and this just, you know, th this freedom that comes on you. And then there's that, that sort of, that tunnel period where you, you go through this, this sort of thinking of, you know, really challenging yourself. And I think, I think that's the voice of the addiction dying out in some ways. Um, I, I'm assuming, you know, and, and for me, that's, that's really changed post hundred days really. That Yeah. I think hundred days is a really pivotal time. I actually developed like a program. It's like hundred days of lasting change and every day for a hundred days, it's like a video and an email because like those days are so critical. And, and it's just like getting through that first part because you cycle through. I mean, the first 30 days are basically like almost euphoric in some ways when you have the mindset shift before you stop and you're just kind of on this high, but then you're getting back into real life and you actually experience all sorts of emotions. And then I would even say the first year um, being a really kind of pivotal time. And I, I feel a lot of people at the end of the first year sort of say, well, is that, is that it? Like, you know, I kind of had these because they're like, well, you get, your baseline of being like up and down, down here, all of a sudden your baseline is way up here. That jump initially feels really powerful and profound, but then you're living up here and you don't remember being down here anymore. You can't, you cannot like, you can't physically remember how it felt to feel, feel hungover. You cannot have that memory because it's a physical thing. And so all of a sudden you're up here and you're like, 
well, life's good, but, but when you were down here, you weren't saying, but life's good. And so you don't, you like you, it's this funny thing that the brain does where you adapt to your new normal in a sense that you think, well, is that it? And then you have to like say, well, wait a second, like, let's take, let's take a moment to remember this right. and then realize, yeah, this is it. There's, um, there's an interesting analogy uh, to, to that experience of um, when you have children in that, that there's that sort of, there's that real, um, the, the euphoric feeling of, wow, this has just happened and this is the most primal, amazing thing that's just, that's just gone on and that I've experienced. And obviously, is it oxytocin, the, the drug that's kind of floods through your system when you, you, you've you know, got your new babies? But then you sort of enter this foggy period where it's, you know, it's just this sort of tiredness and, and you're from an identity point of view, you're really readjusting to, okay, well, who am I now? I'm now a dad. I'm now a, you know, I'm now a provider. I have these sort of slightly different, and obviously you're still really, really happy, but there is a, a huge shift in identity. And I think there's a, there's a, I felt that it's analogous in a little bit to, to stopping drinking that sort of initial burst of, of real joy. Um, and then this sort of this renegotiation of identity that goes on through that period. Um, and it's, it's really fascinating. And I think that for me, the, the really useful training that I had for stopping drinking was stopping smoking because the, the key thing to say to those people as they sort of come up to that hundred day period or as they go through that, that miasma of identity and questioning is that, it all clears up you know the same with the children as well that, that you you do renegotiate who you are and how how you feel and you do you know you do um come to new understandings and it does it, it just work it does work out yeah, and i think the the message to the to people in the, that period although i haven't sort of you know i wouldn't count myself as an expert in any way shape or form but the, the message i think that i would take from my own experience is that don't worry too much don't question that that period know from an outsider's point of view that those questions do get answered in time and that actually it's really just a case of waiting of, of working through those questions but not not thinking that you have to have an answer immediately because an answer does come yeah absolutely and just i think through that really really just keeping in perspective that all right, what is this fermented drink, you know, actually going to solve here? Like if there's some existential questions you're having, certainly going back to that hole you found yourself in is not going to be the solution. And sometimes our brain, the addicted part of our brain, I think can play tricks on us with that and say, oh, well, you know, you start to remember things through rose colored glasses and you're like, well, this, I used to connect with people so much more. I used to have a social life. I used to this, I used to that. And it was like, okay, those things actually didn't come from the glass. So, you know, how do you? Yeah. Um, so go. I was just going to say, so where did you, where did you sort of find yourself when you're like, okay, now I need to make a change. And was it intentional or was it sort of accidental or? Um, no, I think it was more a progression, really. I think like a lot of people through kind of my 20s and early 30s, I could physically just about sustain the drinking that I was doing. But as I progressed into my 30s, I just found that hangovers were, were less a sort of, um, you know, a 24-hour 
headache and something that you take some paracetamol and you're fine. And they were more like full-blown mental health emergencies <laughs> every time I was drinking where I just found that, you know, my levels of anxiety were crazy high and I was just feeling very displaced as a, a person and that it was deeply unpleasant. And, and I, I suppose having young children as well, I was just so aware of how low energy I was when you know, I was hung over. And so I would constantly be in this cycle of feeling bad about the fact that I, I was drinking and also a little bit of trepidation when I was drinking because I was starting to think, oh, grief, you know, the, I'm going to be hung over tomorrow and knowing what that entailed and just not really looking forward to it. So I was going into um, drinking with this sort of, you know, non-positive mindset and feeling like, and, and so <laughs> you have one drink and you're thinking, you're already thinking, oh gosh, I know where this ends up. And um, you, you sort of, clearly the, the joy had gone from <laughs> any, or any illusion of joy really. Because, you know, as I think you make the point in the book really, really well that clearly joy exists outside of drinking because look at children, they, they are the ones who own joy. They are walking, talking joy. They, they, they can do happiness really, really well. And very, very few of those children are drunk, I would, I would wager, is my guess. Um, so I think that that really is, is the key to it, is, is just trusting that you will recalibrate your own ability to find joy in things. Um, and so, yeah, so for me, in, in my 30s, I'm a Christian, and um, I would often stop drinking for Lent because I was really, <laughs> I just wanted to stop drinking. And, and so I would use that as my, oh, right, okay, I'll give up drinking. But, you know, and I would do dry January and Stoptober and, and those sorts of, those short-term initiatives. But, you know, I, I think you have pinpointed very well in this naked mind about the fact that that's not a good introduction to not drinking because clearly you white knuckle it, you are doing it from the perspective of someone who is, um, you know, being deprived. And that is just, it's the wrong way to, to start with these things. And I, I think, you know, you, you acknowledge the, um, the work that Alan Carr had done in the easy way to stop smoking. Sorry, planes going overhead. Um, so, and I think that one of the key messages in, in both books really is that if you go into something feeling like you are quitting you are being forced to quit something or you are giving something up then you're doomed almost from the start and it's really about having that that perspective of actually you are going to gain so much and I think I was much more aware of that with smoking because I could see very quickly about how I felt able to breathe, able to run, able to exercise more. Um, and I think it's a slightly more subtle change with drinking. I think it's as profound. I think it's arguably more profound an impact, but I think it's, it's slightly more subtle. It's not the fact that you're suddenly leaping up flights of stairs and going, gosh, I'm not even out of breath. And um, I think that the, the physical changes manifest over a, a longer period of time and but they absolutely do manifest and you know there's no question about that in my mind 
And really, so I, I just went into my thirties and I was in this cycle of not really enjoying drinking, of giving up any opportunity I could, giving up for Lent. Um, I gave up for, for Lent again um, this year. And as I'd given up, I was thinking, um, you know, that I wasn't particularly enjoying the idea of going back into drinking. And uh, someone recommended your book, which I read and thought was profoundly brilliant. And I think you should be carried through the streets on people's shoulders on a regular basis. Does that happen often? <laughs> that's, thank you. You're making me blush. That's very funny. Um, that's so cool. So a few things like the physical changes, I think you're absolutely right. Like it's not almost an overnight thing, but after a few weeks or even a month or something, I think the main things is people, I think, come up to you and say like, what, what are you doing? Like it isn't as much a specific thing. It's almost like a, wait, what's happening with you? And so I think really it's in the skin in the eyes and almost the aura, if you will, like the, the energy you bring, um, it just shifts and it just changes. And now I feel like sometimes I can, not sometimes, I can almost all the time pinpoint somebody who's drinking heavily and somebody who doesn't drink because they look different in their eyes. Like the presence, you know, the, the aura, the sense of like assuredness and joy living without regrets or the sense of like, I mean, in the skin, you can see, um, you know, kind of veins and redness and, and around the eyes and bags below the eyes. And so it's, it's almost like this crazy beauty serum that you didn't even realize that was going to happen. And so I started looking at pictures of myself and I was like, I look better in my mid thirties than I ever did in my twenties. Like what is happening? You know? And I was like, Oh my gosh, it's, it's the drinking. So I just thought that was worth saying. Cause it's so, yeah, so interesting. To be fair, my, my default facial status is bags and red eyes and broken veins. So I've got nothing really, I'm, I'm already down there. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, the, for me, I think the the most profound physical change, um, and myself and my wife, so just to add this onto the story, so when, when I read the book, I, I sort of instantly knew, um, I think, you know, you make the point in the book that you can drink while you're reading the book. Um, and I, I just absolutely didn't want to. And never, you know, it's, it does feel that there is that sort of same semblance of hypnotherapy, of, hypnotic suggestion through the book which I think is part of its magic um is just I just had absolutely no desire to drink whatsoever and really I mean looking back at it now clearly it was because it was it was just um firing down all of the arguments that I would make to myself about drinking and why I persisted drinking when I wasn't particularly enjoying it and of course the really lunatic thing is that as you read it you realize that no one actually particularly enjoys drinking even those people who go um, oh, I just have a glass of wine on the weekend. It's like, well, you know, that's great, but do you enjoy it? You know, is that something that adds to your life? Um, or is it something that you choose to do? Or is it something that you've just built into an addiction over the years? Obviously, they're very difficult conversations to have, and I don't tend to try and have them, really. But the, um, so my wife, I said, you've got to read this book. It's, it's just, it nails it. And she wasn't, she, I'd always thought that she had the perfect relationship with alcohol because she would have a Guinness like a pint of Guinness and then she'd move on to tea and she, she would always seemingly enjoy the ones that she had. Um, but speaking to her now, she was like, no, I didn't particularly enjoy them. It was just, you know, everyone else was doing it. So I just, I did it. Um, 
and she would say you know that actually one guinness would sometimes be two or two and a half and for her that was enough to you know make her feel a bit rubbish the next day and so she read it and she was like yeah okay fair enough the jig is up and um and so she stopped about as i never failed to t remind her that she stopped about a week later than i did um so <laughs> I, I often tell her about the things that are going to come up in the in the week that more greater experience that i have <laughs> that's hilarious one, that's like my husband and i he never fails to remind me that Sorry. <laughs> I was just saying that's like my husband. He never fails to remind me that he's a year younger than me. <laughs> so. Surely that means you've got the experience and the wisdom, though, Annie. That's right. I know. I'm gonna I'm gonna take your tack and start being like, so I'd like to tell you about what happens in your, you know, thirty ninth year, your forty ninth. Exactly. Um, <laughs> yeah. So. So for, for me, I think the, the most profound physical change that I've experienced has been a calmness that wasn't there before because, you know, addiction works through creating an itch, doesn't it? It's, it's the itch that, that self-generates. And so that for me, removing that from my weekly experience and my, my life has led to, I think, a, a greater degree of calm. And for me, you know, I, my work is around physical health, but I think it's, it's also apparent how interconnected mental health and physical health are. I don't think that's anything for, for anyone. But, you know, for me, that really has shown me just how um, powerful and how valuable our mental health is because I've just been so much more, um, I don't like the word present. Uh, it feels far too American for me, but... Uh, I'll use the word present. It's interesting because we spend so, so, so the real joy and that is not even the right word, but the real, you know, feeling that is very positive around drinking is the anticipation because you're anticipating that you're going to scratch that itch. It's right before you have that first drink or for the first 20 minutes after you have that first drink. And it's like, that's the thing. Right. And if you think, okay, in my day, that's, you know, maybe an hour before, 20 minutes after, it's an hour and 20 minutes or something that I have that kind of anticipation I'm about to scratch this itch. I'm going to be able to, you know, um, do the thing that's going to make all this last 23 hours feel better. But then this, you know, presence, this calmness, this feeling of like, wow, I can live my life and I don't have any noise in my head. I don't have that itch. I don't have that itch that I can't scratch because living with an itch you're not able to scratch by the way during the day you're at work first thing in the morning it's not really a good idea to like drink a few shots like all of this time during the day that you have this ah something's just missing I'm just not comfortable in my own skin that's that's 90% of your day and then all of a sudden you're living this life where 90% of your day that that is gone that noise is gone that's silenced and you're just like here and it's just like whoa and i think that's people are like well how do you get so excited about it like how do you get so happy about you know and i'm like that's why because all of the sudden life is just taken on this like now i'm i'm focused on all sorts of other things that like by the way life has lots of cool shit in it sorry to say but like it just does like it's a good thing and so all of a sudden I can see it all. Whereas before it was just like a lot of my thinking was about like, okay, how soon is too soon? You know, pop the bottle. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And I think that 
it's it's really evident to me now. So we go down to Devon in, on a holiday, which is sort of a coastal um, county in in Britain, and it's a beautiful county. And um, but it's funny going down there after we'd stopped drinking. We were sort of going down, and we, there were all these different places that we used to go to for for dinner and things, and, and that was part of our experience of a, a traditional family holiday there. And we were just really aware that so much of it was geared up towards when and where we could start drinking. And we were thinking, gosh, well, what does that do to the holiday? Does it ruin the holiday? Because we, you know, so much of our experience has been, but we love going to the thatch for, for you know, beer and nachos or whatever. Um, and it's, it's not at all. I think that's where it goes back to this, this renegotiation of identity that you go through. Because we were thinking, but actually, what, what we love about going to Devon is that we can go to the beach with the kids. And, um, you know, we can surf and we can play and we can we have time as a family to, you know, play board games and just hang out and go for walks and all of those sorts of things. And then, so then you realise that actually, you're right, that there is joy extant in life normally that doesn't have to be wrapped up by or topped off with alcohol or, you know, indeed fueled by. Because, you know, you can't have a beer as you're surfing. You can't, you know, it's not, uh, it's, you, you enjoy surfing. And then you kid yourself that you need to finish off the perfect day. You need to have a bottle of wine and five pints of beer. It's, you don't. Because that then means that the next day isn't perfect. You know, you can, you can have this series of great things that if you just stop the, the lunacy or the, the brainwashing, and it is brainwashing, of, of thinking that you need alcohol. Yeah, absolutely. It's so interesting. So um, I want to say one quick thing on um, on Stoptober and all those sorts of things, something we talked about just before we started recording. But so, and I have to say it because yesterday, my new book, The Alcohol Experiment came out. And that was exactly why I wrote it was basically that I'd see so many people who had done so many 30 day breaks, 30 day breaks, 30 day breaks, and it was all kind of white knuckling. And then all of a sudden there they were, the end of 30 days, day 31, it's like, oh, thank goodness. And alcohol had actually become more important during those 30 days than it was before. And so um, anyway, the alcohol experiment is meant to just flip that on its head. So this naked mind, I say, don't stop drinking at the beginning. Let me give you this mindset shift. But the alcohol experiment is for people who just want to stop drinking. So anyway, it's available. It's out there. I'm super excited about it. And I think that, that it really addresses those fundamental issues and all those breaks that every, every one of us who's questioning our drinking does. I mean, maybe not a, a huge majority. Like we just take those, those breaks, you know, and then we, I mean, I did it every time I was pregnant and then I proved to myself, oh, well, I don't have a problem because I just spent nine months not drinking. Sweet. <laughs> Go back to it. And by the way, I made it more important that whole nine months because I sat there and felt sorry for myself at every social event. Oh, so such a tangled web. So, but Andrew, tell me, um, you were a writer and now you were man v fat. Like how did that, how did that come about? Yeah. So, um, I, for the benefit of everyone who won't have heard of what I do, it's, I, I run an organization called man v fat and you can have a look at manvfat.com. And what we do is that we support men around the world who want to lose weight. And the, the reason that it exists is because, I went through a journey with with my weight. So um, previously, I was running a business, 
that were supporting men who were getting married. So we uh, run a website called I Am Staggered. And it was all about men, uh, best men, fathers of the bride, grooms. And so we, I wrote a lot about wedding speeches. I wrote a lot of wedding speeches, um, advising guys about honeymoons and things like that. And the business, um, I'd run it for about three, four years. It was quite a big business. And um, I got bored of it, really, and wanted a new, new challenge. And so I sold that business. And part of the issue about that was that I was working as a um, freelancer at the same time so that was one of the strings to my bow and, and the one of the other ones was the fact that I was writing for a lot of publications about food and food and drink so I wrote for the Guardian um, big UK newspaper and about food so I reviewed restaurants for them um, I won an award for, for being a restaurant writer and, and things like that and so I, I was spent a lot of my time either working, building up this business, and I was working ridiculous sort of 13, 14 hour days and getting home and just sort of needing to speed relax really. So I was, you know, drinking four beers and then eating a pack of crisps. And just because I, I wasn't really moving a lot during the day and I was stressed essentially. And the other side of it as well is that the lot of the work I was doing was being paid to go and eat at nice restaurants. And um, I was not a fool. I said yes every time someone asked if I would go and eat somewhere and they would pay me to do it. So, um, and I did a lot of re reviewing for different guides and things like that. And it was a great job. I really enjoyed doing it. Um, but I became incredibly fat as a result of <laughs> doing that, both being stressed with the business and writing um, for about food. And so I, I was sort of previously... Um, about 18 stone which I can never convert into pounds so it's 14 pounds in a stone so what's that um and you know I'm, I'm it could not uh, carry that weight well and so I was very very big and just miserable with it and when when I sort of sold the business it left me with a bit of time available and so I started focusing on my health and I started trying to find a bit of support to to lose weight so I went to my doctor and he was awful <laughs> very very little information and they don't sort of see it really as their problem although they are increasingly seeing it as their problem to support people with their weight because of you know how many things it impacts on and and then i joined some of the big weight loss organizations which were really difficult because obviously they are exclusively for women although they don't actually tell you that so i was the one bloke in the meeting and um it was just it was really an alien sort of feeling because they were talking about you know um they had challenges about let's let's see who can get into their little black dress and things for christmas and i was thinking i didn't really want to get into the little black dress at christmas um and so it was it was just it, it really was jarring and also a lot of the things that i was struggling with were things that they don't really address so for example for men it's seen as a really positive thing to have a big appetite to go back for thirds and fourths and fifths and sixths. And um, that, that's constructed as a, a very positive thing from a male point of view. And, you know, they don't talk about that at Weight Watchers or Slimming World because that's, you know, it's just not the way that they, it's not the people that they deal with because for women, you know, a personal trainer once explained it to me that women would much rather um, decrease the amount of calories they intake so that they can work out less men would rather increase the amount that they work out so they can eat more 
And I think that's a, you know, there's a fairly profound difference between men and women with regard to weight there. And so it, it just sort of went on from there. And I was just stunned that there was no support out there for men who wanted to lose weight. You know, there's lots of support out there for men who want to get fit and, you know, be able to do 100 chin-ups, um, but nothing really for men who want to lose weight. And so I did a crowdfunding campaign uh, to support Man Be Fat. And we had, by the end of the about two weeks, it was overfunded. We had uh, three or 4,000 guys who'd signed up for it. And, you know, the crowdfunding campaign was absolutely rubbish because I didn't, I'd never done a crowdfunding campaign before, but it was just, I didn't really know what it was that we were trying to start other than, I mean, I would not say a movement because that sounds far too um, arrogant, but it felt like, you know, th there should be something there to support men and currently there isn't what can we do so we started this and man be fat grew from there and now so we started a website we started a forum um we started a number of schemes so we we run a very popular scheme in the uk called man v fat football and that's where their soccer leagues i'll translate it into american for you that's soccer um and so their soccer leagues just for for men who are overweight and obese and we support them with uh, resources to, to lose weight and to know how to lose weight. But also we support them. So before they play their game each week, they all weigh in. And as part of the game, they can score bonus goals for their weight loss as well. So it means that the whole team is actually engaged in weight loss. And it's it's been very, very successful. And we've now got over 10,000 guys in the UK who are losing weight with us. And we've lost, I think players have lost uh, over 120,000 pounds in weight since we began and we've just launched in Australia so our first league is launched in Australia and we're bringing it to America next year so it's it's been you know that that was my sort of background alongside that you know obviously I was drinking and drinking was just part of my life and I think that it's been interesting seeing how um, much I built drinking into working and I think you, you touch on this a lot in the book about the fact that, you know, whenever we met up for meetings and things, it would always previously be in a pub. I think it's been a bit of a culture shift for the organisation as a whole that because I'm not drinking, I don't set up meetings in pubs really anymore. So we've been doing a lot more work, walking meetings and things like that. So, yes, yeah, it's, it's been it's been it's had an impact, I would say, on my work. And also, clearly, from the point of view of men who are wanting to lose weight and the support that they want, often alcohol is a, one of the main contributors to their weight in the first place. And so it's been really interesting to go through that personally and see how that's impacted on me. Um, and also to be able to potentially support them with losing weight. And I think the, the alcohol experiment just sounds like an incredible tool to be able to to offer people because i think you're right i think that a lot of the the existing stopping programs are seen as as being a bit um of a penance in many ways whereas i think a lot of guys if they can have that positive experience of stopping you know a, a pause to reflect rather than a sort of a stop to to grit your teeth through um i think that they would really see the benefit and see they can renegotiate their own relationship with alcohol and see if they're they're comfortable if and to choose it you know i think that's the whole point isn't it is that what you want to give people from from my understanding of it is a completely neutral starting point okay go and choose your relationship with alcohol 
don't don't be influenced by alcohol but go and choose what you uh, don't be influenced by culture as well and don't be influenced by other people but just go and choose and and in my experience and my thinking i think very very few people would choose probably the existing relationship they have with alcohol i think most of them would either stop or massively cut down yep that's so true wow that's that's a such a cool journey i love that it's amazing it's 252 pounds i got out my calculator so kilograms what 252 pounds oh no no sorry it's 120,000 pounds oh no the um like your weight oh 250 uh, you lost oh, I <laughs> yeah, okay. so i was 252 <laughs> pounds and now i'm probably about 60 or 70 pounds lighter than that that's cool that's awesome yeah 250 is big that's like a six foot four linebacker yeah if I, it would have been fine <laughs> if i was six foot four <laughs> Um, so let me finish up with um kind of the last question that i always ask everybody and so what would you if you were going to go back in time and talk to andrew of um a few years ago who was kind of feeling like okay alcohol is really important for my writing i don't know how i would write without it i don't know how i'd be creative without it this is part of my identity um about kind of what life's like now and and kind of have a chat with him what would you say um yeah that's a really good question i think i would have just passed me a copy of your book because i don't think that i could have summed up as pithily and as eloquently and as successfully the impact that that had on me um i think that you know it's, it's with the greatest of respect it's not a long book so it's not something that is, is particularly arduous to read. And I think it's, it's so impactful that I think that it's, I would have just probably pinned myself down and read it to me. Um, and I think the real surprise that I would have communicated is just that it hasn't been a sense of loss around alcohol. And, and actually in truth, you know, we don't really, I would love to say that we, we I think we, acknowledged the fact that it was 100 days but it was only because i put it in my calendar when i stopped drinking um it's not something that we go day to day week to week month to month on saying wow it's been seven months now it's been eight months it's it's really just a case of it that was a decision that was made and i've never actually really questioned it I, you know i don't find i don't know do you find this a lot with people you speak to about it that i, I don't ever really second guess the decision that I made. It feel, it's, it's so emphatically the right decision. Um, in fact, the only thing that's surprised me is how, not anti, but how um, averse I am to alcohol now. So, yeah. you know, if, if someone put, accidentally put a, a gin in a tonic, I would be furious. I would be, I would probably make myself sick because I just, I, I don't like the idea of it at all. Um, yeah. And that, that's a real, really profound shift for me. Um, that it's, I just, you know, we, um, that we were in a pub and there was some beer on the table and I got it on my hand and I was like, that's gross. <laughs> I just don't, yeah. not, not only because it was gross anyway, but like, it was just, I didn't like having beer on me. 
and that's and how much it smells it like it has such a just like you don't realize it when you're drinking it but oh my gosh you can walk in a room and just smell it you're like oh wow hits you it, it, were you the same or is there any points where you sort of think because you know like smokers sometimes go oh it was just that one cigarette that that i always used to you know the first one on holiday or something that i always used to enjoy and they look back on and they seem to punish themselves with do you, do you have any of those sorts of moments around drinking I don't. And it's really interesting because certain people do. So I've been, you know, a few years into this now of getting people's stories and I've been really giving a lot of thought to like, what is the difference? Because for some people it's like a switch. It's like, I'm never looking back and why would I? And that was just like nothing. And for other people, they really continue to mourn it and, and struggle and stuff. And so I've kind of come up with this, this weird, yeah, they, they stop or they have a struggle stopping or they stop and they mourn it. So I've kind of come up with this um, framework or theory, and obviously it's not gonna to apply to everyone, and I'll test it out on you because it's, it's very new material in my head, but basically that there's really three different layers to the onion, if you will. So there's the outer layer of substance-related beliefs, which my book tackles. It tastes good, it's you know gonna relax you. These are the things the substance says it does for you. It enhances your experience, it's fun. So you can, you can clean those out, and if that's that's why you were drinking. If you were drinking for those reasons, like done, full stop, like, okay, that it's just not true. Like there's no possible way I would put, I like to say how I would not pick up a pint of motor oil and drink it because like, there's just no way I would put ethanol in my, like, no. Right. But then there's a secondary layer of societal beliefs. And if you are very heavily swayed by society, you're in a society. So my cousin, she stopped drinking. She read the book. She's like, oh my gosh, it's amazing totally stopped. And then she went back to work where she works for a woman who owns a vineyard as her second job and where everything in her work, like she felt like she was in danger of losing some of her job. So now she just drinks at work events and not at home because that's the balance she felt she had to strike. But you know how insidious that is. And so, but there's a society thing, like it's not a, it's not a wedding without the champagne toast. It's tied up with reward. It's tied up with celebration. And so if you're drinking for those societal reasons, as well as the substance reasons, it's much harder. But then there's this third, there's this core, if you will, and these are the reasons for self. And if you are drinking because you don't feel strong enough to be a mom without your three glasses of wine, or because you don't have enough confidence to walk into a room and network without that added liquid courage, or if you have beliefs about yourself that are very deep and that you're numbing or covering, or you've tricked yourself into believing that somehow alcohol is fixing a hole that you believe exists within you, that is when people really need to look at that stuff before they become completely free. So I, I would say looking at you, that that was not the case for you. And, and for me, that was, um, I was not drinking. I felt like a whole, I have my faith. I have, you know, I felt like a whole happy human. I had just really been duped into this society and this substance sort of category of reasons. And so, but when, you, when someone comes and they're drinking for this, deep personal need and they've decided that alcohol can fill that hole and they haven't filled it with a spiritual practice or they haven't filled it with a self-love or whatever, then that's where it, it really struggles. And that's actually where I'm taking some additional, I'm doing a live event in October and, and I'm really digging into those things, you know, because people who are going to fly across the world, we have people coming from Australia, Finland, New Zealand, like people are going to come to that, you know, that's, that's where we need to focus is on those, those inner 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 reasons and so anyway um that was a very long-winded answer to your very simple <laughs> question well, very long-winded answers so touche um the 
I, I think that's a really interesting framework and, and I think that there is a lot to be said for that. I think that it's, it's really interesting the comparison that you can make between weight loss and um, alcohol because clearly, mm-hmm. you know, you are, there is a lot of similarities between the, the guys that we work with, you know, often fit into those three categories. And as, as crazy as it seems, um, because, well, I suppose, you know, food isn't an addictive subject substance the the feeling that people can self-administer through excess amounts of food is an addictive process so you can you know binge and make yourself temporarily feel good um and that that then obviously has impacts on on weight and i think that you know there's a lot of comparisons there around drinking and and overeating and and the, the guys who we work with and and the the difficulty in many cases of when someone is using food and you know using is the right word there it's when they are using food to to fill a hole then that that is really a that that's the hardest layer of the onion to to access and to to support them with and i think you're right i think yeah. you know, for me definitely faith has been i think that that and, and clearly that's that's all personal and it's you know it's to each their own i think that for me being able to to pray and to be um aware of god and what god wants or what i believe god wants i think that that is fundamental for me in not replacing alcohol but actually in seeing um what i w- what alcohol was obscuring from me in many yeah. ways yeah that's um, so cool yeah and and so yeah i'm yeah I, I think i would just like to reiterate the the thanks that i have for you and that my wife indeed asked me to pass on to you as well that i think it's a really really important powerful book and um i would hugely recommend it to anyone and have several times well thank you so much andrew and i would let really it out to other people but it's on kindle and i'm not lending my kindle to anyone else <laughs> very cool well i really appreciate your time this has just been a really enjoyable way to spend spend an hour so thank you so much and um yeah have a wonderful day yeah you too take care this has been annie grace with this naked mind podcast thank you so much for listening you can learn more at thisnakedmind.com and please remember to rate review and subscribe as it really helps us spread the word